Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help, and Lord, we ask that you would make us wise, wise unto salvation by your word. Lord, we pray that you would make us mindful of the traps and the snares that the enemy would place for us. We pray, Lord, that you would make us shrewd, most of all, that you would cause us to trust you and that we would call on your name as David does in these psalms. And Lord, we pray that you'd protect us and keep us and make it where we pass safely by, even though the traps are right there in the road in front of us. So Lord, we're asking for your divine protection over our lives. And we pray that you would help us to Trust you completely as we walk. We pray that you teach us by your word and cause our hearts to resonate with his truths. And we commit these prayers to you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I would invite you to open this morning to Psalm 140. And we will be looking at Psalms 140, 141, and 142. These three psalms have an emphasis on uh, traps and snares. They all three talk about them. 140 verse 5, the arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net beside the way they have set snares for me. And then you get it again in 141 verse 9, keep me from the trap that they have laid for me. And then 142 verse 3, in the path where I walk they have hidden a trap for me. These are all three psalms of David, so it seems that in these three psalms, David is, is responding to those who are setting traps and snares for him. Psalm 142, in the superscription, we read this, a mosquil when of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. This is actually the only psalm in all of books four and five that has historical information in it, that tells us you know, where David was, uh, perhaps when he the circumstances to which he's maybe responding in, in this psalm. Uh, all the other psalms with information like that are in books 1 through 3, Psalms 1 through um, 89. And then in 90 through 150, this is the only one with, with uh, historical information in it. Interestingly, um, Psalm 140, in verse 3, David is going to say, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. This week I had a nightmare. And in this nightmare, this was Thursday night, uh, I came awake just as this large rattlesnake struck at me. And, and so I was aware of the rest of the dream, you know, because I woke up in the middle of it. And um, what had happened is my wife, who loves cats, um, had been keeping a lion in the house. And I don't know where the lion came from. Dreams are irrational, I guess. And um, the lion had gotten loose. And in the dream, you know, our children are running around in the house, and there's this lion on the loose in the house. And I am, it's like I'm processing in my mind how much faster than me that lion is. And um, 
and how much more powerful its jaws are than my hands. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through how in the world am I going to get that lion back into the cage? And I don't know why my wife had this thing in the house. <laughs> and, and I'm terrified in the dream. And then the rattlesnake comes into the scene. And the thing is huge. And, and recently, uh, we went with Gabe and, and uh, we went and saw this, the riot and the dance. And they've got this, this section in there on snakes and these sidewinder rattlesnakes that move sideways. And they're so fast. They're really terrifying. And, um, and so I'm, I'm looking at this snake now and this lion. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to deal with this situation? What in the world am I supposed to do? Well, thankfully, the lion goes for the snake. And he gets his jaws on the snake's neck, but it's like he can't bite through the snake. He can't get the snake dead. And then the snake gets loose and lunges for me, and that's when I come awake. <laughs> Praise God, it was a dream. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's one of those dreams where I could not get those images out of my mind. I had to turn on the light and read these passages of Scripture to refocus my heart and mind to try to get back to sleep. But thinking about those realities... It helps us understand. Look at Psalm 140, verses 1 through 3 here. David says, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men. David is feeling the kind of desperation, the kind of danger, the kind of fear for his life that, that I was experiencing in that dream. Then he goes on to talk about them more in verse 2. He says that they plan evil things in their heart. And stir up wars continually. This kind of language, we've seen it before in the Psalms. We've seen it all over the Psalms. Deliver me. Preserve me. They're plotting evil against me. And in the Psalter, this all stems from Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Where, where the nations are raging and the rulers of the earth are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And if we take our cue from the superscription of Psalm 142 of David when he was in the cave. And we think about that passage that, that Mike read earlier. David is fleeing for, for his life. Saul has been throwing spears at him, trying to kill him. And now uh, David is hiding in a cave. And he's crying out, deliver me. And then look at verse 3 of Psalm 140. He says, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's. And under their lips is the venom of asps. In that, that movie that, that uh, we went to see, The Riot and the Dance, I would commend it to you. If you haven't seen it, you can maybe find it on YouTube or buy a DVD or something like that. It's a really fascinating uh, uh, look at the creation from a Christian perspective. It was produced by Indy Wilson and uh, people aligned with him, you know, Guerrilla Poet Productions. I, it's, it's really good. They observe that over 100,000 people die a year of snake mites. Those things are, they're deadly. They are poisonous. And, and they go into the details of how some of these snakes, there's like a, a nerve-numbing agent at work in them that immediately uh, attacks your, your nervous system and results in your body not functioning as it, as it should. And David is saying that these enemies that he has, that look at what they're doing in verse 2. They're planning... And, and, and they're planning these evil things in their hearts, and then they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's. So what's he saying? He is saying that what they say, both to David and about David and to other people, 
what they say, their words, the use of their tongue is like a snake bite. And under their lips is the venom of asps. Under their lips is poison. What comes out of their mouths is deadly. I, th I think this is um, good for us to think about because the enemies of the gospel, the people of the world, the seed of the serpent, their words are not neutral. The way that they communicated, the way that they communicate is intended to harm. It's also instructive the way that David responds to this. What is David's response to the deadly communiques of his enemies? He prays. He doesn't issue a counter-message, at least not here. He doesn't uh, go try to refute their argument, at least not here. His response here is, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men. And then what he said in verses 1 through 3, at least verses 1 and 2, he basically repeats it in verse 4. So let me draw your attention to the way that verses 1 and 4 are very parallel. Verse 1, deliver me. Verse 4, guard me. Verse 1, O Lord. Verse 4, O Lord. Verse 1, from evil men. Verse 4, from the hands of the wicked. And then verse 1, preserve me from violent men. Verse 4, preserve me from violent men. Verse 2, who plan evil things. Verse 4, who have planned to trip up my feet? So he's just repeating himself, isn't he? Deliver me, preserve me, guard me, preserve me. And the repetition communicates the urgency. Lord, I need you. And, and he, in verse 4, he changes it a little bit. He, he changes it away from what they're doing with their tongues and what's under their lips, the serpent poison. He changes it in verse 4 to who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares for my feet. And then he repeats Selah, which is in verse 3, and now it ends verse 5. I want to think with you for a moment about traps. Traps are unexpected, and they are unlooked for. Traps are not going to be hidden in open sight, unless they're camouflaged somehow so that they're not noticeable in open sight. In other words, what, what I'm trying to communicate here is the way that the enemy is probably trying to entrap, entrap us right now is most likely not something that we expect. It's most likely not something that we are looking for. It's most likely not something that is on the radar. So there may be things on your radar. There may be things that you're aware of. There's probably a trap that's not on the radar, that you're not aware of. It's just lurking there. That's the whole point of calling it a trap, isn't it? And this is what makes them so deadly. We're, we're walking down a path, and there are leaves on the path, and all of a sudden, the iron jaws of the, the unseen trap snap and crush a leg. That's the way these things work. Criminals... Wicked people are smart. I once talked to a, a reformed, I mean, he's not reformed in the Calvinistic sense. He was a, a, a former um, criminal. He, he, was, he was into um, illegal, uh, the, the traffic of illegal substances, if that communicates what he, he was a drug dealer. And um, 
many of you in the, in the congregation may know this guy. And he, he was talking about his former life. And he, and he was talking about how he had to be smart because uh, the police knew what he was doing. The police knew what he was doing, but they couldn't catch him. And so he had to outsmart them. And, and, and he said, you, you also have to be aware you can't trust criminals. You know, if, if you're a drug dealer, you have to be aware that people are going to buy drugs from you. They're probably looking for a good deal. They might try to steal from you. So if they know where you live, you don't want them to think that they, they're, they're going to be able to find the drugs, let's say, if they were to shoot you or to, you know, beat you senseless and then be able to take the stuff for no money. So he, he said, you never hide the, the stuff in the same place in your house. And if they come to your door, I mean, I, you know, these are things I'm like, wow, what a world is out there. And these people are so smart. If they come to your door... Uh, you always go to a different place in your house to get the stuff that they came to get. A and uh, you never want to leave things in a place that people would expect. So he said, he said to me, sometimes I would, I would put the stuff in a grocery bag and hang it on the shower head because the police are never going to search in the shower. They're never going to walk into the bathroom and sh throw the shower curtain back and see if that's where the stuff's hidden. Criminals are smart. My point here is criminals are smart. And people that are trying to entrap you are smart. You have an enemy that is smarter than any human criminal. And, and, and so what I'm saying to you is there are ways that the enemy is trying to entrap us that are going to be beyond our ability to detect. And we need to respond the way that David does. We need to pray for divine protection because God is smarter than Satan and he's more powerful than any enemy that would entrap us. Why does David call them the arrogant in verse 5? Well, because they're rising up against God and trying to overcome God's king. They're the wicked of, of Psalm 2. They've set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. So in verses 1 through 5, what's David doing? He's crying out, Lord, I need your protection. I need you to deliver me. I need you to be the one who is guarding me. And we should pray the same way. Verse 6, this brings us into a new, a new section of this psalm. David here confesses his faith and his hope in the Lord. Look at what he says here in verse 6. I say to the Lord, and again, uh, Lord, the way it's printed here with the capital R, capital D, but there's smaller, small caps here. This is Yahweh. I say to Yahweh, you are my God. This is a confession of faith. You, Yahweh, the Almighty, the Creator, the Lord, the Sovereign One, you are my God. I worship you. So naturally, give ear to the voice of my pleas. I'm praying to you because you're my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. Verse 7, O Lord, my Lord, O Yahweh, my Lord, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot or they will be exalted. So, so he's, he's praying and he says, Lord, you are the strength of my salvation. Think about that string of words. O Yahweh, my God, strength of my salvation. Do you know what the, that, that series of phrases means? It means that your salvation, if you trust in God, if you've repented of your sins, 
and you've placed your faith in Jesus, which if you're here and you're not a believer, this is how you become one of God's people. You turn away from the things that God says are bad things not to do, and you put your hope and your trust and your faith in Jesus. And you look to Jesus to establish you as righteous before God. And you look to Jesus to save you from the impulse to do those things anymore. That's what it means to, to be saved. And this, this string of statements means, O Yahweh, my God, the strength of my salvation, this means that your salvation is as strong as Yahweh himself. And that's pretty strong. There's nothing overcoming that. If, if Yahweh is the strength of our salvation... That means that he himself is the one who ensures its validity, its sturdiness, its lasting power. He is the guarantor of our salvation if he is the strength of our salvation. And there is no trap and there is no snare. I don't care how smart the enemy is that is going to undo that. He is the strength of the salvation. And because... David worships the Lord. He's saying, look at verse 8, Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. You know what? This is just praying in accordance with God's own priorities, isn't it? The desires of the wicked are to overcome David, to overthrow Yahweh, and to set up some false kingdom in God's world. And David is saying, don't grant their desires. Protect me. God, I'm one of your people. Don't grant the desires. Otherwise, they'll be exalted. And God doesn't want that. And that brings us to verse 9, where David says, this is really interesting. At least I think this is interesting. You know, I, I used to, back at, when I first started uh, teaching the Bible, I was emphasizing the importance of Genesis 3.15, and people would say things to me like, if Genesis 3.15 is so important, why do you never see it referred to? I'm like, what are you talking about? It's referred to everywhere. Why do you think David is likening his enemies to snakes in verse 3? Why do you think he starts talking about their heads in verse 9? As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Lips, that's where the venom of the asps is. And do you hear what he's saying? Let the words that they say come back and overwhelm them. Let the way that they go after their program be exactly what brings them down. If they want to pursue evil, let the evil they pursue crush them. I mean, this is Genesis 3.15 imagery, right? God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, the singular male seed of the woman, is going to crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Heel is kind of where a trap might hit, huh? Verse 10, let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Uh, you know, if you, if you sort of turn on your biblical imagination here and you ask yourself, is there a time in the Bible when fire rained down from heaven upon the enemies of God? You go immediately to Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? Genesis 19. And it's, it's also interesting that in Genesis 14, that whole land is described as a land of pits. And, and there's a battle in that part of the world and people fleeing from the battle. Some of them fall into pits. So I think David is, is thinking of Genesis 14 where the pits are described and Genesis 19 when the fire falls from heaven against, against the enemies of God. Verse 11, 
Let not, the ESV renders this, let not the slanderer be established in the land. But literally, what it says is, let not the man of, of the tongue be established in the land. And I think he's referring back to verse 3, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's. This is like an earlier Psalm, Psalm 12, when the wicked, they, what they say is, our lips are with us. Who will overcome us? What they're saying is, we talk so good, nobody's going get, to get, get the better of us. That's what they're saying. By our words, we can establish a new reality that is at odds with God's reality. By what we say, we can so redefine people's experience that we prevail. The world is still trying to do this. The world is still setting traps like this. The world is still trying to redefine people's perceptions, people's understanding of who they are, people's understanding of the world by what they say. They're slandering God. They're telling lies. This, this morning I was, I was reading a very interesting um, article by a pastor who was talking about people today who are proclaiming the gospel in a certain way but the way that they bring, pr proclaim the gospel, it brings condemnation. And he said, you know, that's not the kind of gospel that Paul's talking about in Romans 8.1, is it? A gospel that results in no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we, we want to be sure that the gospel we're believing, the gospel that is making us sensitive to the people around us, is a gospel that has no condemnation for anybody who's in Christ. I'm not saying we don't need to repent. Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying if you are repenting of your sin and you are trusting in Christ, you're in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. And if you're questioning that and you're thinking, oh, but some people need some condemnation in their lives. I wonder if you're maybe ensnared in one of these traps that you didn't expect to be ensnared in. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. Again, this is, this is David praying. The evil that these people have pursued, let it come back upon them and let it happen quickly. Verse 12, he says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Who are the afflicted in this psalm? They're the people who are right with God. They're the people who are trusting in the Lord. The people who are being opposed by the world. The people who are aligned with David. That's who the afflicted and the needy are. That's, who, that's whose cause the Lord is going to maintain. How does David know that the Lord is going to maintain their cause? Because God spoke in his word. God revealed his character through what he said. That's how David knows. So on the basis of God's character and his revelation of himself and those things, they reveal God's standard of righteousness also. And God has promised to do justice in accordance with his standard of righteousness. So all around us, here are the kinds of, some of the kinds of traps that people set. They want to use God's standard of righteousness against people that God says... There's no condemnation for those people because they're in Christ. Or they want to use God's standard of righteousness to critique God himself. That's not going to... If you critique God himself, you're undoing the standard of righteousness, which undoes, undoes your critique. You can't make that critique. 
David says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. And this is going to result, verse 13, surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. So let's think for just a second about Psalm 140 and what David says here. He says, they've got all these traps for me, traps that I can't deal with. I can't see them. I can't detect them. So I need you, Lord, to deliver me from those traps. And I'm going to praise you because you're my God. And I'm going to call on you because you're going to do justice. That's basically the message of Psalm 140. It's very interesting how we're moving, I think, in the same direction in Psalm 141. But there's a, there's a very interesting new twist on what David says here. So let's just continue here into Psalm 141. David is still in difficulty. He's still going to be dealing with traps. But look at what he says here in Psalm 141. O oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear. This is just what he said in 141.1. Give ear. 140 verse 6. Give ear to the voice of my pleas. Same exact uh, phrase. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. And then think about this situation. If, we, if, we're, if, if these psalms are all influenced by the superscription in 142, when he was in the cave, David has been driven out of Jerusalem which means that he can't go up to the altar to offer sacrifices. And whatever, they don't have a, ta a temple built yet, but maybe they had some kind of tabernacle structure set up where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. What, whatever kind of situation is, is, is in place, David can't go there to obey the Torah of Moses. But he still wants to obey God. He still wants to worship God as God has prescribed in the law of Moses. So look at what he says in 141 verse 2. Let my prayer be counted or established as incense before you. I can't go there, Lord, and offer up incense, so receive my prayer as obedience to your instructions. And then he says, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Because of what Saul is doing to me, I can't go to the altar to offer the sacrifice. So count my lifting of my hands as me making the evening sacrifice. This is a man who wants to worship God. He wants to be holy. And then look at what he says in verse 3. This is so profound. The, the movement of thought in verses 3 and 4 speaks to all of us. We all need to pray this way. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's like David is anticipating James 3. I can remember hearing one of my friends long ago saying, the only muscle in your body that isn't attached at both ends is your tongue. And, and James says, the tongue, he says, in the tongue is a world of iniquity. And it's set on fire by hell. The tongue is dangerous. And David says, Lord, I need you to guard my mouth. Now, David knows that it's not just the tongue that's the problem. He knows, as Jesus taught, that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So he's going to get to the heart in verse 4. And it's, I think it's kind of like he knows, I need you to change my heart. But while you're changing my heart, I need you to guard my mouth. Because in the process of the heart change happening, I don't want to say things that I feel that are evil. This is very important for us today. Because in our day, there's all this emphasis on authenticity. You say what you think. You've you got to keep it real. 
And, and some, I think sometimes people say things they shouldn't say, and they know they shouldn't say them. But they think, well, I'll be false to myself if I don't say what's really in my heart. David is saying, Lord, there's bad stuff in my heart. I need you to change my heart, and I need you to guard my mouth. Because I don't want to come out of my mouth what's in my heart. So look at what he says in verse 4. Do not let my heart incline to evil. You know what the word incline means, right? If, if you're just leaning this way, you're inclining. It's like he's saying, Lord, don't let my heart lean toward evil. He knows that the way that the heart leans, if it starts leaning evilward, actions are going to follow, right? You start thinking about evil, you start looking at evil, the next thing you know, you're honing your skill at doing evil. Do not let my heart incline to evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds. So he's asking for heart change, and he's, he's concerning himself with what he does and what he says. He knows also that there are going to be people involved in this process. Verse 4, in company with men who work iniquity. So he, he knows that he, it's like he's spelling out the process for us, isn't it? You start, you start leaning a certain direction. You start seeing something, and, and you start getting attracted to it. Next thing you know, you're doing it. Next thing you know, you're, you're surrounded with people who all think this is a good thing to do. And then, then you got a taste for it. Look at the end of verse 4. Let me not eat of their delicacies. So these fine things, these rich things, these, these expensive celebratory indulgences in evil. David is saying, you got to keep my heart from even beginning to drift in that direction. Because if I start drifting, I'm going to start doing, and then I'm going to start enjoying, and then I'm going to start surrounding myself with wicked people. Verse 5. Now, uh, verse, in, in 140 and in 142, David is going to say things like, they're setting traps for me. They're trying to harm me physically. And, and that, I think, is to be contrasted with what he says here in verse 5 of chapter 141. Let a righteous man strike me. And then he says, it's a kindness. You know what the word translated kindness here is? It's chesed. It's loving kindness. It's the steadfast, loyal love that, that characterizes God himself. David is recognizing we all get to a place where we are so enchanted by evil and, and so blinded by our attraction to this and our desires are so perverted that we need to be jolted by a physical blow. We literally need people sometimes to slap sense into us. I'm not suggesting that you, you know, hit one another, all right? But David is saying, let a righteous man strike me. I am suggesting that if there are people who are members of this church that you know, that you're connected to, who are moving toward evil, you should intervene. You should do anything you can to enter. We should. If I, this is why we signed the church covenant. If I am inclined toward evil and then I start becoming blind to it and my heart is perverted and I think this is okay, I need you to reach out and grab me and yank me back up into the safe place. 
you know, it's, it's like a shepherd. He's got these sheep. Let's say they're up on a plateau. Let's say there's a cliff. And one of these sheep thinks, oh, that cliff looks interesting. And he gets over there by the cliff, and he's looking over the cliff, and all of a sudden he starts to drift. You know, if the shepherd reaches out with his hook, and he grabs that sheep around the waist, and he yanks that sheep back up, it, even if he breaks some ribs, the sheep's alive. The sheep's alive. Let a righteous man strike me. I'm not saying we should be rough with each other, okay? I am saying there are times when we are going to need to be confronted. And David, in this psalm, is modeling a pious willingness to be confronted. This is, this is almost like a poetic reflection on uh, when, he, when Nathan confronted him in 2 Samuel 11. You know, David had put... Um, he had, he had had Uriah the Hittite, the, the husband of Bathsheba, he'd had, her ki- had him killed. And so... I, I think Nathan had to know as he walks into that room to tell David this story, to try to bring David to repentance, he could just as well kill me. He got Uriah out of the way. He was a problem. He could get me out of the way. I'm a problem. But Nathan goes in there and he tells David the story and David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. He just confesses the sin and repents of it. Verse 5, let a righteous man strike me. It is chesed. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head, like the oil with which Samuel anointed him as king. I think this image is very important because I think what David is saying is, as important to the kingdom as my anointing as king is my righteous behavior. When a righteous man confronts me in my sin, intervenes in my life, turns me from wickedness to the pursuit of righteousness, that is as significant for the ideals of God's kingdom to be realized as any prophet coming and putting oil on my head. It's also reminiscent of Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head. I think there's there's a reality here that if we're going to dwell in unity, we're going to need to confront one another. We're, we're going to need to contend for the truth when error arises. Because people are sinners. We're sinners. We're going to stray. We're going to need confrontation. We're going to have to, to care enough about the truth to say, I've got to stop you. I've, we've got to talk about this. This has to be confronted. I can't just let this go. The culture makes it seem sometimes like being confrontational about the truth is divisive or is unhelpful or is, they make it seem awful and evil and wicked. That's a trap. That's a snare. We don't expect it to be a snare. We think, oh, I'm good on that one. And meanwhile, uh, the end of verse 5 uh, let's, let's look at verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And then he says, yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. What's the, here, here's, here's what I would propose as an explanation for this. When David feels himself attracted to particular acts of evil, he's not saying, I want evil to prevail. I want Satan to be Lord of the universe. You understand what I'm saying? So it's like he's praying against Satan and he's praying against the evil deeds of the seed of the serpent 
even as he's attracted to wickedness. And he needs somebody to slap him and, and him to come awake to the reality that that's their kingdom. That's the way they do things. That's not for us. Verse 6, when their judges are thrown over the cliff. I think he's talking about people in positions of power and influence. People like judges who have the ability. They ought to uphold truth and righteousness and justice. They ought to uphold good things. And instead, they uphold wicked things. They authorize evil. They promote evil. They decide for evil. David says, when their judges are thrown over the cliff. It's not if. What he's saying is these people are going to confront the righteousness of God. They are going to face the justice of God. Wicked judges, corrupt judges, will face judgment. Look at what he says next. Then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. When they face God's judgment, they will remember that, that they had access to God's words in David's mouth... And they'll recognize how good it was. And I think the implication is they will regret the way that they refuse to listen to God's word. So David starts uh, asking again um, for the Lord to receive his holiness in verses 1 through 4. And to make him holy. 1 and 2, receive his worship. 3 and 4, uh, keep him from evil speech and words. 5 and 6, cause him to receive reproof and to do justice against the wicked. And now 7 and 8, he's, ref he's reflecting on death, the inevitable outcome that we all will meet. And, and what he says is, as when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. It's like he steps back from creation for a moment and sees the earth as a vast graveyard. Everybody dies. Every human body decays. And all the bones are there. So it's like David envisions somebody plowing up the earth and turning up all these bones scattered at the mouth of Sheol. And in verse 8, I think he's saying, I have a hope that goes beyond death. He says, but my eyes are to you, toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Um, that, that phrase, leave me not defenseless, there's a footnote in the ESV. It, it, it says in the lower margin, do not pour out my life. And the word translated life there is soul. Do not pour out my soul. I think David is saying, Lord, my bones are going to be scattered at the mouth of Sheol, and I'm asking you not to empty my soul. I'm asking you to preserve me even after my body dies. And then verses 9 and 10, here are the traps again. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of the evildoers. Um, the word rendered evildoers there is the same word that was rendered back in verse 4, men who work iniquity. Same exact phrase. And there he's saying in verse 4, let me not eat of their delicacies. So here's what I would suggest. The delicacies are traps. The, the, the delightful things that wicked people enjoy are snares. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you not to enjoy good food and food. Uh, uh, I'm just saying, uh, watch out for things that look like indulgences. Be careful. Those are snares. They can be snares. Verse 10, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. David is saying, how am I going to pass by these nets and these snares? You, Lord, 
you are going to keep my feet out of the snares. He's not, he's not saying, Lord, I'm so smart that I'm going to be able to locate all the ways that they're trying to ensnare me. I'm so strong that even if the jaws of that trap closes on my leg, it's just going to bounce off me because I'm so powerful. No. He's saying, it's you, Lord. It's you that's going to keep me safe. Psalm 142. So I think the, the unique and distinct contribution of 141 is there in verses 5 and 6. Um, this welcoming of, of righteous reproof. We ought to pray for hearts that receive this. We ought to pray for one another that we would have hearts that receive this. Psalm 142. A mosque of David when he was in the cave. Um, try to put yourself there. Uh, you're David. You're on the run. And, and Saul, the king, would be your killer. Everybody's going to think that what the king is doing must be right and good. So everybody's going to think, I don't know what's wrong with David, but he must have done something wrong. I mean, think about the way we respond when we hear that somebody got arrested. I don't know what he did, but it must have been something bad. Otherwise, the police wouldn't have arrested it, right? I don't know what he did, but it must be something bad because Saul's trying to kill him. He must be a criminal. That's the way public opinion is going to go against David. And he's, he's fled from his home, and he's hiding out in a cave. And then I, I, would, I would encourage you to think of David as a real human being. And if I was hiding out in a cave, and the king was trying to kill me, and then I realize that the king has just entered the cave, I'm going to be terrified. He's found me. And, and I think probably this is what's going on with David. This is, I think this is why verse 1 reads, With my voice I cry to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. So again, what is David's plan in this desperate moment when Saul is now entered into his hiding place? His plan? Pray. What is David going to do to stay alive? Pray. What is David going to do to overcome Saul? Pray. What is David going to do to give voice to the injustice of this situation? Pray. What is David going to do to deal with the distress in his own heart? Pray. I think it's easy to imagine, look at verse 3, when my spirit faints Within me. I think it's easy to imagine Saul darkening the entrance of that cave and David's spirit fainting within him. Oh my goodness. This is it. But then he says, You know my way. And I think what we're hearing is David saying, Even in the darkest moment, God knows the path that is ordained for me, Psalm 139, before any of the days came to be. You know my way, Lord. You know what I'm going to confront. You know what I'm going to face. And I think what begins to happen here is David starts thinking about God and his confidence starts to rise. And also, I think he probably, at the human level, began to realize Saul's not aware that I'm here. And Saul's not familiar with this cave. And Saul is not attuned to the noises in this place. So maybe I can sneak over there to him and cut off the corner of his robe. And, and that's, you know, what he winds up doing there in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Look at what he says in verse 3 of Psalm 142. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. And here I think he's talking about 
public opinion in verse 4, look to the right and see there's no one who takes notice of me. When he says in verse 4, no refuge remains to me, I think he's saying even the cave has now been invaded. I've got no place to hide from this guy trying to kill me. No one cares for my soul. And so here he is again. Verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. The cave won't hide me from Saul, but the Lord will. And the book of Samuel says that Saul sought David every day. And the Lord did not give him into his hand. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. David can't go home. David, David, as an Israelite, has a tribal allotment of land, an inheritance of land that is his by right. He can't go there. And it's like he says, that's okay. I'll take the inheritance of the Levites. Look at what he says there in verse 5. My portion, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. I can't go home to my portion of land. I'll take the Lord as my portion. And you can, you can almost see it happening, can't you? You can see the, the fainted soul, my spirit faints within me. The terror, with my voice I cry out to the Lord, verses 1 and 2. The distress turning into rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. It's just happening right before us in this psalm. The transformation of his heart. Verse 6, attend to my cry, for I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they're too strong for me. Saul and his henchmen, they're overwhelming. Bring me out of prison. Maybe at this point, the cave in which he's hiding feels like a prison. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Uh, the, these three psalms, it, it's, it's fascinating to me the way that the flow of thought moves in the, in the Psalter, because um, we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen David in this kind of distress. We've seen him crying out to the Lord this way. But then it's like we move out of that distress into triumph, particularly like in Psalm 110, right? Where, where the Davidic king is conquering, and, and you get all this, this wonderful hallelujah section in 111 through 117 responding to the conquest of the Davidic king. And now near the end of the Psalter, we're right back in distress, and it's almost, like, it's almost like the Psalms are set up to, to reiterate this strong theme in the Old Testament that the Lord's servant is going to suffer. The Lord's servant is going to be opposed and he's going to be persecuted. So these Psalms are once again preparing the audience of the Psalter for the coming of the man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief from whom men would hide their faces. And like David before him, Jesus would make his father his refuge and portion, his only hope in the land of the living, entrusting himself to God in the days of his suffering. And we are people who follow in his footsteps. The righteous by faith will indeed, look at 142 at the end of verse 7, David says, the righteous will surround me. And that's anticipating the one who's going to come after David. The righteous will indeed surround him. David says at the end of verse 7, For you will deal bountifully with me. We're going to gather around the son of David, with whom the father has indeed dealt bountifully.
Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to respond to the traps and snares of the enemy and to the righteous blows of our friends who would give us faithful wounds. And Lord, I pray right now for those among us who may need a righteous blow, I pray that you'd give them soft hearts. And if their hearts are hard, Lord, I pray that when the blow comes, the heart would break and repentance would follow. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us those who recognize that even when evil attracted us, we were still praying against the evil deeds of the wicked. Lord, make us those who, who with David, pray that you would not incline our hearts to any evil, lest we practice those deeds and surround ourselves with those who do them and taste their delicacies. Lord, make us those who love you, who worship you, and who welcome friends who care, us, care enough about us to get in our way, to intervene. Lord, we love you, and we want to follow Christ. So we pray that you'd make us able by causing us to live out the truth of these three psalms. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.